0: Hello and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. In November 2013, the Public Knowledge Forum brought together leading thinkers on technology, politics and the press from Australia and the United States. The event at the Sydney Opera House explored pressing questions about the future of journalism and its impact on governance and public policy. In conjunction with the United States Study Centre and Sky News Australia's APAC, the Walkley Foundation is delighted to present this series of six podcasts examining the state of journalism and asking where to next. This episode features former media proprietor Conrad Black in conversation with former Australian Foreign Minister the Honourable Bob Carr.
1: Good afternoon, Uh, welcome to the lunch component today of the Public Knowledge Forum. Uh, My name is Tom Switzer, I'm the I'm a research associate here at the U.S. Studies Centre at the University of Sydney and I also edit at the uh, online edition of the American Review, our quarterly journal of opinion. Uh, and we have dedicated our special issue uh, this quarter to the subject of public knowledge and there are some very good articles uh, in this e- edition uh, dedicated to this very theme. But today I thought I'd talk about uh, America, uh, American foreign policy, And putting the relentless 24-7 media and internet environment, uh, the rise of the digital uh, media, uh, the decline of newspapers as a business in the internet age, I'd put that in a more broader context of America and American foreign policy. We've already had three panels, one yesterday at the Opera House and the other two in the uh, studio, and will be followed by a few (coughs) more panels on the question of public knowledge and the disruption of the media industry. I thought we'd change the pace in the first half of our 30 minute segment and talk about America and America's place in the world and I have here no two better authorities on American history and American politics than Bob Carr and Conrad Black and I thought I'd start with a quote uh, that Conrad, from from an article that Conrad wrote I think it was in the National Review about two months ago right at the height of the Syrian crisis when the president Um, was tossing and turning about whether to intervene in that civil war and he was ultimately given a diplomatic lifeline from the Russians to get the Syrian government of President Assad to the negotiating table on abolishing its chemical weapons program. But at the height of that crisis, Conrad Black wrote, and I quote, not since the disintegration of the Soviet Union in 1991 and before that the fall of France in 1940, has there been so swift an erosion of the world influence of a great power as we are witnessing with the United States. Conrad, could you elaborate on that?
2: (laughs) It is, as you imply, Tom, rather histrionically phrased, but that is, after all, only a little over 20 years, so you wouldn't see such a huge decline Of a great power in 20 years. So it's not really as severe a condemnation as it might seem just because I'm invoking the complete disintegration of one country and the military conquest of another. But uh, there has indeed been a decline, but I am not in fact what would be called a declinist. I think the United States is unquestionably the most important country in the world. But it is a great irony of contemporary affairs that after after this tremendous rise from thirteen colonies to a position of preeminence uh, unprecedented in the history of the nation state in just two hundred years, a rise without the slightest parallel or precedent in the history of the world and america 's last rival simply disintegrated, fell like a souffle, imploded in front of it, without a shot being exchanged in anger between the two countries that it it, it has lacked a sort of motivation or organizing principle for policy and it has suddenly become in public policy terms very temporarily and reversibly and at a convenient time if you have to go through such a phase since it has no real rivals right now it has suddenly become an absolutely silly country it can't do anything right and uh, for those of us in canada brought up all our lives in the shadow of this mighty force it is an astonishing spectacle and i say this i want to emphasize with no disparagement. I'm actually, notwithstanding the fact it's a country that persecuted me half to death, I am quite pro-American. And certainly anyone, whether you like it or not, has to acknowledge what an immense force it is, and on balance, overwhelmingly a force for the better. <coughs> I mean, we couldn't have defeated the Nazis or the communists without the Americans, and we mustn't be under any illusions on that. But but, it, it, but what I said is in fact true. I mean, the and and the, you know, it has an incoherent foreign policy. It had a collective debt after 232 years of independence of $10 trillion and it's now four and a half years later $17 trillion. And it isn't really debt as you would define it or we would define it because when the government of this country or Canada or other countries has a deficit and they have to sell bonds to pay for it, they sell them at arm's length at a rate that attracts arm's length buyers and here they're issuing a chunk of this debt to a 100% subsidiary of the Treasury the Federal Reserve the central bank for notes that are issued just like any of us exchanging emails It's a shell game and we're talking about the United States not Paraguay now It's a longer answer than you wanted, but you wanted an explanation
1: now of course you say you're not <laughs>
2: <coughs> You say you're not a
1: declinist, but nevertheless the specter of decline continues to haunt the United States We seem to have these waves of declinism or at least talk of decline time and again throughout American history uh, Bob um, you raised some eyebrows last year in the United States in the heat of the presidential election campaign, when as foreign minister you had a discussion, essentially a private discussion, with the Republican nominee um, Mitt Romney, and you told him that America is one budget deal away from banishing talk of American decline. Um, what did you mean by that? And summarise briefly why this was such a controversial issue in the heat of the election campaign.
3: Well, it wasn't controversial. I, was, uh, I made the mistake of sharing it with a candidate who's about to walk into a fundraiser just across the corridor. And uh, I know all the temptations of being an oppositionist, um, but Americans, far from being controversial, Americans from Bob Zelick, the former head of the World Bank, right across the spectrum, mm. seemed to seize on this comment by a, a modest Australian foreign minister, which is to say an Australian foreign minister, <laughs> and, and detect great profundity in it. All I meant was that so many other things are going right for America. The energy independence, mm-hmm. the inventiveness of their manufacturing sector, um, the ideas, the quality and competitive strength of their universities, that identifying weaknesses, you keep coming up against this deadlock over debt and deficit, over government spending, in Washington. And it just struck me as being a reasonable thing to say, that if America can get that out of the way, then 90% of the talk about American decline is banished. And and my comment, which I thought was entirely unexceptional, just a a polite thing to say to keep a conversation going, (laughs) uh, was taken up by Bob Zellig, who quoted it, and was kind enough to attribute it to me. Um, uh, Mitt Romney, for entirely understandable reasons, uh,
2: put his own twist on
1: it. Conrad, would you agree with that notion that America is one budget deal away from banishing talk of American no,
2: decline? No, I think it's um, more complicated than that. I agree that it is certainly a very reparable situation, and all talk of decline, I think, would vanish quite quickly with a with a few changes. But the fact is, uh, they've spent this additional seven trillion of debt, which is really an expansion of the money supply. It isn't really debt most of it. It's it's just what we used to call printing money, and. Um, and they've only got about a one and a quarter percent gain in annual economic GDP gain. And I, I think there are more substantial problems And in a word. I agree the top of American education is, is the best in the world, but it isn't a competitive system, Bob. And when they compare the average person going to school with other countries, it doesn't fare well. They have a magnificent health care system for 70% of people, but a rather indifferent one. They have health care for the rest, but it's a myth that they don't. They do, but it, it, it's a poor system for 30% of the people, which is 100 million people. And, and it, it won't do in a rich country. I mean, I'm no socialist, but it won't do in a rich country like that. And, um, and they're squandering a lot of human resources. And the justice system, which is close to the moral heart of any country is an utter disgrace, a 99.5% conviction rate, terribly severe sentences, a semi-privatized prison system that's completely corrupt, and 97% of the convictions are without a trial because of the abuses of the plea bargain system. And the Supreme Court sits there generation after generation drinking their own bathwater, and I speak as someone that was upheld unanimously by the Supreme Court. I have no grievance against them personally, but where the hell have they been? while the Bill of Rights has been put to the shredder. The greatness of America morally... It's in the great state papers and utterances of its statesmen. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident and we the people and so forth. And, and that doesn't really exist in civil rights terms. I don't mean in a racial sense, I mean the actual liberty of individuals. It's a prosecutocracy and the prosecutors are terrorizing everybody and no one does much about it. And I, so I think, it's, I think it's more complicated than that, but with that said, it's a country that possesses the genius of renovation and, and it will renovate itself.
3: I saw the greatness of America in September last year, Leaders' Week, at the General Assembly. You might remember the controversy over the YouTube video mocking Islam and the destabilisation across the Islamic world in response to that. And Obama gave a speech which invoked American values in his address to the General Assembly. It's a beautifully structured speech, it's got wonderful sinewy language, and it's a defence of a basic American value, which is freedom of expression. He says the answer to abuse of freedom of expression is not to close it down, not to limit it. The answer is more freedom, more expression, not less. And in the speech he managed to to engage the Islamic world and say we understand the hurt. He said a lot of what goes for free speech in America involves hurt, offence to religion. But he gave nothing away in terms of America's bedrock commitment to freedom of expression. And I thought it was a superb restatement of American values. But then I saw the same President at the G20 in an evening discussion, a long discussion, a long drawn out discussion over Syria, and I was struck by the fact that an American President is taking, is choosing to take to the G20, an economic forum, a bid to get endorsement for a military strike to uphold an international norm against chemical weapons. And the American president had to sit there, having made the decision, to raise it in this form, and live with country after country, country after country, reading him a lecture on how such action cannot be taken without the endorsement of the United Nations. The Chinese president saying uh, the United Nations has a perfection. Those were his words, as offered up by the translator, when it comes to the necessary endorsement of such action. And so I saw an America that can only do something with the help of other partners, and ultimately, only tackle this problem with the assistance of the Russian president.
2: Conrad? Yeah, um, Bob, Of course, I agree with you, but I I just want to mention that YouTube critical of Islam that was produced by some kook in California, I think. Uh, There's no shortage of them in California, as you know. was invoked by the United States administration as the explanation for the violence in Benghazi that led to the murder of the U.S. ambassador to Libya. And you will recall that the then Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, gave an address to the entire Muslim world, translated for her in all the relevant languages, uh, all based on the theory that this violence in Benghazi was the result of that, uh, of that Uh, video. And of course, we now know that it had nothing to do with the video. It was a terrorist attack, and it was part of the administration's pretense that it had essentially stopped terrorism in any matter that was relevant to the United States. It was just a complete fraud. And, And the spectacle of the U.S. Secretary of State giving this ludicrous, platitudinous address to an uncomprehending totality of the of the Muslim world in all their languages on a spurious campaign ruse like that I thought was just indicative of, of what sort of nonsense we're coming to. And as for, as for Syria, you, uh, at the start, Tom, quoted me. I, I just want to say there's room for all sorts of views on what was the best thing to do about Syria. But taking the position that the U.S. wasn't going to do anything it's fine if that's what they want to do. Then taking the position that Assad had to go, but we will have nothing to do with making him go, is not so fine. Then that uh, there is a red line with the use of sarin gas on your own citizens, uh, and we're going to do something about it and we won't stand for it, and publicly sending the military forces to deal with it. Then saying, ah, but we want to punish Assad, not hurt him because we prefer him to the opposition then saying we're going to do it, then giving any credence at all to the idea that the G20 or the UN have a veto over the exercise of the US commander-in-chief's rights constitutionally to deploy the forces of the US as he sees fit. And then abdicating the position of commander-in-chief to the Congress, uh, whose approval rating has not got into double figures in the last 10 years and doesn't deserve to, and and that goes for both parties. And, and, And then grabbing with, the desperation unworthy of a great nation, this, this spurious act of diplomacy by the head of the Russian thugdom, was just a, a, a succession of completely unacceptable and inane misjudgments.
3: But, but what is better? What, what, what is better, Conrad? The, the adventurism of the administration of George W. Bush, I mean, it's precisely because I'm so fond of America, and because I had the opportunity, the privilege of speaking for a country that has support for an American alliance in its DNA, that I'm so angry with what happened under the Bush administration, we saw a depletion of American power, a depletion of American confidence, with two ungainly, expensive, draining wars launched in response to September 11. America sustained this attack from a terrorist group based in Afghanistan, and opted to respond to it with the instincts of the neocons and the ultra-nationalists. I make a distinction here because one is not the other. A Rumsfeld is not a Pothorritz. But America opted to launch two big, ambitious wars. They lasted for about a decade each. And they drained American treasure and blood. And if the Obama administration reacts with caution faced with Syria, or leads from behind in respect of libya it's precisely because it has got an american public saying hang on we elected you to get us out of wars in this part
2: of the world and not to launch new ones uh, bob i will not be portrayed as an apologist for george w bush i think he was a bonehead <laughs> um, i think he was right to take some action in afghanistan that's where the attacks originated But this idea of nation building in Afghanistan and Iraq is completely insane. But we have between us highlighted the problem here, neither party makes sense. Now this is a first in my experience, I go back to the Eisenhower administration and often you had both parties saying sensible things and putting up strong candidates. And now we have neither party, although certain individuals in both parties are exceptions, but neither party is in my opinion sensible or even saying relevant things about these problems. And, and uh, it is, of course you're right that, that squandering trillions of dollars and 15,000 or whatever it is, American lives and a great many other people in those wars was mad. I agree with that. But that doesn't quite wash what's come afterwards. And, and I have no problem at all with the concept of an organized retrenchment by the US. Like it's a sensible policy, but that's what you do. You do an organized retrenchment. You don't pretend you were still there when you're not. And you don't call a retrenchment a pivot to another ocean when you're not really moving to another ocean, other than, as far as I can see, sending 200 Marines to Darwin, Australia, or something like that.
1: Uh, On that note, um, could you argue, though, the difference between the Obama administration's foreign policy and the Bush administration's positions? It's a difference in degree, not kind. I mean, after all, President Obama did commit to a surge of US troops in Afghanistan. He tripled US troops in Afghanistan in late 2009. Uh, he's also escalated the drone strikes throughout much of the Middle East. Um, he's failed to put a price on carbon emissions, uh, just as President Bush could not do so. Um, the NSA controversy recently shows uh, that there is a big gap there. Guantanamo has not closed down. So, Bob, could you argue that the difference is one of degree, not kind?
3: Yes, but it always is. You don't get, you don't get a radical change, not, you certainly don't get it in a mature society when a government changes make the point about the the government that's taking over in Australia in many respects, certainly in foreign policy. You don't get radical departures. And least of all in the American system, where the President shares power with the Congress and with the Supreme Court. The worst version of a
1: constitutional court, I think, uh, on offer anywhere in the world.
3: Zimbabwe might provide competition.
1: (laughs) Uh, Now, on that note, though, we're talking about foreign policy fatigue in the United States. I mean, poll after poll, it's quite compelling that the American people are turning off foreign policy. Um, And there's an emerging conventional wisdom, I think it's fair to say, particularly among a lot of uh, moderate Republicans. Uh, Richard Haas, a long-term Republican uh, foreign policy maker who's the head of the Council of Foreign Relations, Peggy Noonan, President Reagan's speech writer who writes uh, a column for the Wall Street Journal editorial page, George Will from the Washington Post, distinguished conservative commentator. And their view is that America should reorder priorities in favor of domestic affairs get the house in order before America can exercise the kind of global leadership it has more or less since World War II. What would you make of that conventional wisdom that's starting to emerge? And to the extent that that is true, what are the implications for American foreign policy in the region and the Asia Pacific and Australia? Well,
3: well, two quick points. I think the most riveting change in uh, the sea change in American politics is the rise of isolationist sentiment on the right of American politics. This is not what we could identify as the McGovernite isolationism in the 70s in response to the Vietnam War. This is, on the conservative side of American politics, a strongly articulated view that America should retreat from international engagement. This is very, very significant. I think for Australia, uh, from our national interest, it does raise concerns. Australia has got over 100 years of saying, in some language or another, We want America involved in the region to our north. What is the the American alliance for us except a commitment to be aligned with the dominant maritime power of the world? That's that's the great constant about Australian foreign policy. We We're part of the British Empire, it was the dominant maritime power. The British Empire did not leave us. Sorry, we did not leave the British Empire. There was no Declaration of Independence in 1901. Mm -hmm. The British Empire left us when it went into the common market and withdrew from military engagement east of Suez. Australia is attached, it's in our DNA, to the dominant maritime power of the world. It's a constant in our foreign policy. So, if there's a strong isolationist sentiment emerging in the US, especially on the Republican side of politics, because it's always latent on the Democrat side, on the left of the Democratic Party, It means something significant for Australia and how we see our security. The people
1: identified, though, are mainstream, card-carrying members of the foreign policy establishment. These aren't isolationists. Your Richard Haases, your Peggy Noonans, your George Wills merely want America to discriminate and be more, if you like, prudent in the world and not be a Pax Americana, so to speak. Uh, Can America be a balancing hegemon, not be a balancer of first resort, but one of last resort, in other words?
3: Well, I think it's an argument America has when faced with, with every challenge, be it in the Middle East, or be it faced with a maritime territorial dispute in the, uh, in the Sea of Japan, or the East China Sea.
2: Conrad? Um, I, I think the United States in its history has only asked of foreign policy that if not be threatened. It, it, never, it never was in the way other great powers, most of them were, an imperialist country, it had absolutely no interest in going where it wasn't wanted. And when it did, it was by accident it didn't stay long. I mean, it, 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 could, it could have kept Cuba and it didn't. It could have kept the Philippines and it didn't. And um, all it wanted was not to be threatened. And, but, uh, but it couldn't live with the threat. When it was threatened, it wanted the threat removed, and it persisted until it was removed. It, and it was a strong enough country to require that. So it never became accustomed to living with antagonistic, rivals like the european powers did but the fact is it isn't threatened really i mean its strategic interests aren't threatened russia is not threatening western europe so there's no real need for the americans in europe now and and uh, there's some concern about the appetites of china and you people here know more about that probably than i do but i, I can't imagine that as, with a little bit of encouragement and management and uh, subtle diplomacy that the combination of India, Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, Thailand, Philippines, Australia, and other, other, East Singapore, and so forth. That's quite enough to contain China. And I I personally, from my vantage point, thought the, Setback of the colonels in Burma or Myanmar was something of a slapdown to the Chinese, but you would know much more about that than I Bob. But, but so I, I, there isn't much need for the U.S. in the world the way it was before. So I don't think it is so much isolationism, although George Will is in his heart a bit of a, a you know he's from the Midwest, from Southern Illinois, and he's sort of an isolationist. Although he's a university alumnus from from Oxford. Um, as it is, let us be careful not to spend such quantities of resources overseas that everything decays at home, and decay in the United States is a worry to everybody in both parties.
1: Let's turn to America at home before we talk briefly about the media environment. One of the themes of this conference is that this uh, breakdown in the the old media and the disruption has led to a, a, a plethora of debate P- a of voices in this new b- debate about um, politics. And you're seeing uh, polarisation. And particularly in the United States, you're seeing the uh, rise of uh, Fox, Chan- Fox News Channel on the right, MSNBC on the left. Um, John Judas, one of our panellists uh, after lunch, has the cover story of this week's New Republic, one of America's leading uh, liberal political journals. And he makes the point, we are stuck with dysfunction in Washington and he blames primarily the rise of the Tea Party, the right-wing group of the uh, Republican establishment, well, sorry, insurgencies of the Republican Party. Is uh, polarity, p- polarization, possibly dysfunction linked in America to the Tea Party, or is it more complicated? Is it more related to the rise of this new media?
3: Uh, I'm delighted with Fox News. I think it's terrific. As a surrogate Democrat, I can see that Fox News is working almost as a laboratory experiment to render the Republican Party unelectable at each presidential election. It's it's working like a textbook experiment. It's just fantastic. To win the Republican nomination, any Republican has to veer decidedly to the right to get the endorsement of the, what the the Maoists used to call the freaks, goats and running dogs of Fox (laughs) News. So to get on those shows, and to get rapturous endorsement from the fire-breathing, table-thumping personalities of Fox, every Republican candidate on social issues and domestic issues has to veer to the right. And it's got to be emphatic because every night, every day, they're going to be on one of those interview programs. And the way you turn out the Republican base and win a majority in the next primary is by doing Fox News. But by the time the election comes around, the Republican candidate is too right-wing to get a majority of the American electorate. So, as a surrogate Democrat, I find it terrific. It's, it's uh, <laughs> already, already you're seeing the, uh, the suggested Republican candidates, Republican candidates, being drawn into positions that clearly are going to be too right-wing for the bulk of the American electorate. And Hillary's job in fundraising and building a winning coalition is looking easier than it's been for any likely Democratic candidate, and only because of the forum provided by Fox do you have such an easy path to final presidential election success. I think it's delightful.
2: Conrad? Fox News is a textbook case of how to make $800 million a year for News Corporation. The fact is, before Fox News, there was was really only liberal news and news comment on the menu, Bob. You weren't as heavily submitted to uh, American television as I was living so close to it, and and, uh, it, it filled a vacuum. And it has been replied to. I mean, MSNBC and some others have gone farther to the left than they were, and what you have is a vortex. I wouldn't lay it all on Fox News because if you want to get the flip side of the uh, of the right-wing catechism, you can easily get it from the left on the channels. But the, I, I think in both parties the practice has been to run away from the centre to get the nomination and toward the centre to win the election. I don't know that it's that much more pronounced with the republicans than with the democrats. But um, What disturbs me is I don't think the highest quality people are running and I think that the gridlock and the dysfunctionalism is a combination Of this terrible escalation of of partisanship and ideological hostility, and the decline of the quality of personnel uh, seeking the highest offices. And as I had occasion to touch upon at the session yesterday, I won't repeat it all, I don't want to be the pub bore here, but I trace it back to Watergate. I mean, once we started on this business of criminalizing policy differences, and threatening people with, with criminal penalties because you didn't agree with them. And we had the same thing in that completely spurious impeachment of Bill Clinton. I mean, those peccadillos were tawdry, but the, that's not what you impeach somebody for. I mean, if that was the criterion, there would be quite a number of arguments of the White House who would have had a real sleigh ride in an impeachment trial. But uh, once we got into that, I think that A good many people who would otherwise have sought great offices decided that it was just too difficult a career and and the atmosphere became so antagonistic it became very difficult to create the coalitions on issues as they arose that the country had thrived on before. I just cite one example in, in closing my answer. In the terrible year of 1968, with the riots and the war in Vietnam and the assassinations and so forth, we, we had at one time or other Lyndon Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, Robert Kennedy, Nelson Rockefeller, Richard Nixon, and Ronald Reagan all running for president. And they were, you can say a lot of things about all of them, but they were all serious people qualified to be president. And and look at this procession. of absolutely improbable characters that sought the Republican nomination last year against Mitt Romney, when competent people just sat it out. And I find that scary, and I've never seen that before in the US. So you would argue that um,
1: America is not more politically polarized than it was before in American history? So you're not so pessimistic then uh, about it. Uh, no, new I, media. I, yeah. it's not
2: as bad as no. before the Civil War. Sure. It's more polarized than, it, than than it has been for some And To time. what extent
1: do you think that is linked to the rise of this new media? You know, this blogosphere, Twitter, Facebook, uh, cable television.
2: You're asking me? Yep. No, I, look, I, I don't do any of those things, so I'm not the best guy to answer. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't. I think that's a symptom and not a cause. I. I, I, I think the. Um, Look, I think the basic problem is, that, and and very few Americans would put it in these terms, but if you put the right train of questions, you'd get to this. They they think that the liberal establishment in Washington and in the the traditional national media destroyed a distinguished president and scuttled the effort in Indochina. I'm not saying they're right, although I think to some degree they are right, but what I think is neither here nor there. That's what they think, and they don't trust them. And this leads to the whole conspiracy theory mentality and it incites uh, the attachment of credence to far-fetched explanations of things. And you get, frankly, a bunch of absolute loopies that you you wouldn't hire to empty inkwells running and being elected to serious offices. And it's scary, but they're not all uh, Uh, right-wingers. A lot of them are, but not all of them. I think it's a very
3: complex phenomenon. I I think you've uh, got a big chunk of issues... Around about the time of the Vietnam War, the trauma of America seeing its power defeated by Vietnamese nationalism, Uh, Henry Kissinger talks about a McGovernite Congress settling the score with the President and seeing that American support did not continue to flow to South Korea uh, when it needed it and when it might have defeated the North Vietnamese. You've got those issues plus the, plus the, uh, the trauma of Watergate and extremism being incubated on both sides of American politics. And the idea of a powerful president like Lyndon Johnson bringing bringing all sides of Congress together and forcing through deals. And the story of Lyndon Johnson striding through the corridors with his uh, with his uh, what were his dogs? Uh, cor- a it a trigger.
2: They weren't corgis. They were no uh, uh, beagles. Beagles.
3: These beagles snapping at his heels. Left them by their ears. Yeah, yeah into, into the office of the uh, the Republican, the Republican minority leader, uh, with a Dirksen. bottle of b- bottle of bourbon under his hand, and saying to saying to Dirksen, "Well, if the minority leader won't come to the president, the president comes to the you and negotiating something significant." I think I'm a defender of uh, many aspects of the Obama administration From what I think is unfair criticism that doesn't take into account the excesses of the President he exceeded. But I think think when critics say the President hasn't demonstrated a capacity to charm and negotiate in Congress, there might be a bit of truth there.
1: Before we go to one final question for you both, I wanted to uh, refer to a quote of Conrad's about 20 years ago when I happened to work at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington DC and we asked Conrad uh, about the, um, uh, the future of the newspaper industry and Conrad said there is always going to be a place for a newspaper. After a while it's a damn nuisance carrying a screen around with you. <coughs> Conrad, have you changed your position in the last 15, 20 years? Not
2: really. Uh, it, it's, it would be a terrible nuisance uh, reading a newspaper on, on a screen small enough that it wasn't a nuisance. So say, here, it's not a nuisance to carry that, but you wouldn't want to read the news on that. You was, no one would seriously want to do that if they had an alternative. And um, um, I, I think but but some people always people want a printed product, but, I, but as I was saying to the group yesterday, uh, I, I don't think the newspaper industry has been has been as swift or agile as it could have been adapting to the change, and they have for the longest time tried to use the internet as a tease to draw people into into sustaining this unsustainable overhead they have in expensive presses and delivery systems, physically delivering newspapers all around cities. But I, I think I think some people will always want it. Although, I think a lot of that will be transferred to home printers. It'll be flashed out to them, they can print it themselves. Um, And I think the great titles, with the goodwill and the credibility in those great titles, the the better managed of them, will manage an electronic newspaper that will will be successful. And the editorial function, which they provide better than anyone else, has on it now a greater premium than ever, because the choice of information and entertainment is so absolutely overwhelming. And, and so I, uh, it is a terribly complicated, difficult, and perilous transition, and not all of them will make it through, but in general, I stand by what I said. Joseph Schumpeter's creative destruction, and all things considered, you're an optimist? Y- yeah, well, Schumpeter was a capitalist, and so am I. <laughs> Bob,
1: final question. Are you an optimist or a pessimist about the quality of, future of quality news? Uh, whether it be in television, radio, um, a, b- a bit of
3: a pessimist because the newspapers train people. <clears throat> if the newspaper is going to decline, where are the, where are the cadetships? Mm. Where is that interaction between a reporter and a sub-editor? Where's the, the sub-editor striding over to the desk of a reporter and say, in paragraph three, you say such and such, but you contradict that in paragraph nine, or I just don't understand what you mean by this. That, 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 con- that, that education is precious. A seasoned, I remember at the Bulletin the chief sub-editor was Dudley Burgoyne who had been editor of the, the Telegraph when it was part of the Packers table. And uh, he, he had a terrific contemptuous view of journalists' ability to write. But you learnt an enormous amount from that interaction. Now with everyone doing their own thing, flinging up flinging up their, their thoughts online, I just see an absence of training and checking. And where's the newspaper library? Where's the equivalent of that and the the newspaper librarian who knew everything, like the sub-editors? And uh, everything's about the skill and the judgement. And without newspapers, I'm not seeing the electronic media or the so-called blogosphere
0: filling that gap. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.